Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. I've spent so long in the darkness, I'd almost forgotten how beautiful the moonlight is. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 135, Corpse Bride. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And if this is your first episode of 2022, Happy New Year. I don't think we should still be saying Happy New Year, but I'm going to do it anyway, just in case this is the first episode of 2022 that you're listening to. Welcome back to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a regular returning listener or indeed a brand new listener to this podcast, Thank you so much for being here. You are so wonderful and amazing. No matter how you found this podcast, I'm so grateful that you did find this podcast because we are doing the third annual animation season. This is something that I've done on this podcast for the last three years. This is animation season 2022. And it's genuinely one of my favorite things because I love animation. This is not a purely animation podcast, but I love to talk about animation because like most people, I grew up watching animation. I grew up watching Disney movies. I grew up watching Don Bluth. And even still to this day, I still get so much joy out of watching not only old animated movies, but new animated movies. I'm not opposed to CG. I love CG animated movies. There have been some excellent CG animated movies over recent years, but I love, love, love hand-drawn animation. I'm a huge sucker for it. And I am a massive sucker for stop-motion animation as well. So I'm really, really excited to bring you this episode because this is one of the best stop-motion animated movies that is out there. I mean, there's a lot as well. And I'm a huge fan of Laika. So I've covered some Laika movies on this podcast. I've covered Kubo and the Two Strings and I've covered Coraline. And I love what Laika do. And obviously this was the first movie contracted that Laika actually had input in before they made Coraline. So this movie is a really big deal for the history of Laika. I'm not going to go into the history of Laika on this episode because I do so on other episodes. But 
one of the things that I love about this podcast is I get to geek out on animation. I get to talk about why I love animation so much and how I love animation and the whens and the whats and the whys and all of that sort of stuff I get to talk about. But really, the reason why I do animation season is not only because I feel like a lot of movie podcasts bypass animation, but also because I have a couple of verbal diorama mantras that I always talk about on this podcast. And the first thing is that animation is not a genre. It's a medium by which to tell a story. It's not a genre. So no matter what your streaming service tells you, animation is not and never will be a genre. And also, there's a lot of great animated movies for children out there, but that animation is not just for children. I get quite annoyed when people refer to an animated movie and they say, oh, it's just a kid's film. As if that's like dismissing it as, oh, it's too childlike for me. It's not grown up enough for me. There are some really wonderful treasures out there in animation. I've spoken about a lot of them in the past. I'm going to speak about some more of them throughout January and February on this podcast. So I really hope if this is your first episode and you are interested, please stick around because there's so much more fantastic animation coming your way on this podcast and in this specific animation season as well. Before we get into Corpse Bride, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to the previous episodes, the animation season episodes that I started off with. So the first one of the season this year was the Transformers the movie, and that was just a really huge success. I got so many wonderful comments about Transformers, about how it genuinely changed people's lives. And that is a movie that I think the legacy of that movie is, oh, well, it is quite a sad movie, but without that sadness, without that emotion, that Transformers the movie wouldn't resonate as much as it does with so many adults now who were children when they first watched it. And also the previous episode on Wolfwalkers. And I'll be completely honest, Wolfwalkers has broken no verbal diorama records. And that's purely because it is a movie that not many people have actually seen. And I really, really want to change that because Wolfwalkers desperately deserves your attention. It is a beautiful movie. It's so intricately designed and detailed and the work that went into that. Cartoon Saloon are an outstanding studio. If you don't know who they are, look them up. If you don't know their movies, find them. But especially Wolfwalkers because honestly, it's outstanding. It's an outstanding piece of work. So let's move on to the third movie this animation season. Now, this may have not been Tim Burton's biggest film of 2005 because that was his remake of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I'm not going to say anything bad about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I'm just going to say the original is better. But Corpse Bride is definitely his best film of 2005. So with that in your mind, here's the trailer for Corpse Bride. <laughs> What if Victor and I don't like each other? <laughs> As if that has anything to do with marriage. They were due to be married, though they'd never before met. His parents were thrilled. Hers were filled with regret. Oh. But in a moment of panic, oh. Victor desperately fled. <gasps> and by a grave misunderstanding, <gasps> married the corpse bride instead. You may kiss the bride. He was frightening, but beautiful. 
and would never be false. Who is she? I'm his wife. All that she lacked was the beat of a pulse. Maggots. <laughs> From Tim Burton, creator of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Why go up there when people are dying to get down here? Comes a tale of wit, charm, and strife. I'm not dead. About a timid young man. Victoria! And the love of his life. Sounds creepy. Can a heart still break once it's stopped beating? A tragic tale of romance, passion. I feel the same. And a murder most foul. He's married to a corpse. What a cutie. You should have seen him with fur. Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. This is gonna be good. Victor Van Dort, son of Nouveau Riche fish merchants, finds himself in an arranged marriage with Victoria Everglot, a high society woman who he's never even spoken to. After Victor horribly messes up the wedding rehearsal, he ventures deep into the woods while practicing his vows. However, once he finally gets them right, he discovers he accidentally recited them to a corpse. His new, deceased bride takes him with her to the land of the dead, while his living fiancé waits desperately for his return. With two brides both pining for him, Victor must decide between his love-at-first-sight fiancé Victoria or his tragic corpse bride Emily. Let's quickly run through the cast of this movie. We have Johnny Depp as Victor Van Dort, Helena Bonham Carter as Emily, Emily Watson as Victoria Everglot, Tracy Ullman as Nell Van Dort and Hildegard, Paul Whitehouse as William Van Dort, Mayhew and Paul the Head Waiter, Joanna Lumley as Lady Maudeline Everglot, Albert Finney as Lord Finnis Everglot and Grandfather Everglot, Richard E. Grant as Lord Barkis Bitten, Christopher Lee as Pastor Goldswells, Michael Goff as Elder Goodnecht, and Jane Horrocks as Black Widow and Mrs. Plum. Corpse Bride has a screenplay by John August, Caroline Thompson and Pamela Petter, is directed by Mike Johnson and Tim Burton, and based on original characters by Tim Burton and Carlos Grangel. Now, as I've said, it's no secret that I have a bit of a love of stop-motion animation. I know, Roy, you're probably surprised by this bolt out of the blue statement, but I'm not sure when my love of stop-motion started. It may very well have been with Ardman, but it was cemented by Loika and The Nightmare Before Christmas. And originally, The Nightmare Before Christmas was going to be featured this animation season. But before you get upset that it's not, there is a good reason. Firstly, because I really feel like it deserves to be sandwiched between Halloween and Christmas, because there's no January town. And secondly, because I desperately wanted to do a Loika movie, but I also wanted to do something Tim Burton and gothic and macabre and so the desire to feature the only movie that linked Laika and Tim Burton became kind of all-encompassing and honestly Corpse Bride is so often forgotten in the lexicon of stop motion that that fact alone actually kind of makes it more worthy of inclusion in this season. The story behind Corpse Bride actually starts during production of The Nightmare Before Christmas when the late Joe Ranft, to whom this movie is dedicated, introduced Tim Burton to a Jewish-Russian folktale. The two Jewish folktales acknowledged to have inspired Corpse Bride are The Finger and The Demon in the Tree, 
both of which were published in Howard Schwartz's 1975 book, Lilith's Cave, Jewish Tales of the Supernatural. The first, which is The Finger, is about 16th century Rabbi Isaac Luria of Safed, is set in Israel and starts with two young men making fun of a third, Reuven. Reuven is the eldest and he's getting married the next day to a wealthy, beautiful woman. As the friends tease him, they walk into the forest surrounding the city of Safed. One of them notices a tree root sticking out of the ground which looks like a finger. Filled with merriment and high spirits, they suggest one of them should put a wedding ring on the root. Reuven, as he's due to be married, suggests that he should do it. He slips his ring on the root, speaking the words in Hebrew, you are betrothed to me, three times. As soon as he finishes, the root twitches, the ground rumbles, and a body of a woman rises from the earth. She cries out to Reuven, my husband! And the three friends scream and run away in horror and fear. They reach their respective homes, barricade themselves in, and breathe a sigh of relief. The next morning is Reuven's wedding day, and the friends are shaken and confused, but a great many people have gathered for Reuven's wedding to its bride. The ceremony starts, and a blood-curdling shriek comes from the back of the crowd. The same corpse from the night before stands there. The wedding party runs away in fear until none are left except Reuven and the rabbi. The rabbi asks the corpse why she's here. She replies that the groom is already married to her and, as proof, shows his ring. The rabbi turns to the young man and asks if this is true. Did he say the vows in the presence of two witnesses? And Reuven confirms that he did. The rabbi suggests the matter would have to go to court as it appears that this young man has indeed married a corpse. On the day of court, the corpse testifies, as do Reuven's two friends. Reuven himself takes the stand and pleads with the courts to annul the marriage, as it was unintentional, but the courts will not relinquish her new husband and instead wants the marriage to be consummated. The parents of both the bride and groom confirmed to the court that their respective children had been betrothed to each other from before their births. The court's final decision is that despite Reuven unwittingly makes a validated vow of marriage to this corpse, the fact that he was betrothed to another, the fact he had no intention of marrying a corpse, and the fact that, surprisingly, the living cannot marry the dead, mean that the marriage is declared null and void. The corpse shrieks, piercing the souls of the living, and becomes dead once more. She's then reburied deeper underground with the proper Jewish burial rituals, and the wedding of the bride and groom continue with haste. So that's the story of the finger, and you'll notice there are some remarkable similarities between the story of the finger and the story of Corpse Bride. But then there's another tale that comes from the same book, and that is called The Demon in the Tree. And The Demon in the Tree has a less obvious link. This time, it's about a young rabbi's son who is playing in the forest when he spies a finger sticking out of a tree hollow. Thinking that it's one of his friends playing a joke, he slips a ring on the finger and says the wedding vows. An inhuman face appears in the tree and the young boy runs home petrified. He forgets about this. Many years pass and the young boy turns into a young man and marries a beautiful young woman. He takes his new bride to their new home and she's struck by a tree branch outside and it kills her instantly. After a year of mourning, the young man marries again and once again his beautiful new bride is killed by a rogue tree branch. With the community suspicious and no respectable parents wanting a cursed man marrying their daughters, he weds a third bride from a poorer family. She is clever, resourceful and hardworking. And when standing outside the home after the wedding, she notices the tree branch being pulled back and avoids being struck by it. And she sees the woman pulling the branch and she chases after her as this woman runs into the forest. 
The woman is inhuman looking and the bride realises that she is a demon. A demon who believes that she is the young man's true bride. But instead of causing harm to the demon who would pay the harm back double, the wife decides to treat the demon to a plate of jam, knowing that demons love jam, obviously. And she leaves the jam at the base of the demon's hollow tree. The next morning, the jam is gone and it's replaced with a gold coin. The wife understands that as long as the demon is appeased, that she will not harm them. The wife then becomes pregnant and knowing the demon will likely be consumed with jealousy and potentially eat her baby, the wife goes to the demon and offers her a trade. The demon can have her husband one hour every Sunday for whatever the demon wishes as long as the wife and child are left alone. The demon agrees to this trade and the husband visits every week as promised. The wife gives birth and her and the child come to no harm from the demon. Seven years pass under this arrangement and when the husband goes to spend time with the demon as agreed, he instead finds the ring that he had given to her, knowing that she has released him from their agreement and that he and his family are now free. And while Corpse Bride leans into the finger more than the demon in the tree, the original text's Jewish roots are removed and Christianized for this story and the dark morbidity of the original Jewish tales are brightened considerably by the time we get to the actual story of Corpse Bride. And interestingly, lightness is not something that Tim Burton is especially noted for. Production on Corpse Bride started in November 2003, while Burton was working on Big Fish, and his next project was to be his remake of Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And coincidentally, he would work on both Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Corpse Bride simultaneously, and as I'll come to, so would a lot of other people as well. Now, as I mentioned, this isn't a true Leica production in the sense that they were contracted in for this work, so it isn't made under the Leica Studios banner, but rather a co-production between Leica Entertainment and Tim Burton Productions with Will Vinton Studios uncredited. And as I said, I go into the history of Leica in both episodes on Kubo and the Two Strings and Coraline, so I'm not going to go into it now for Corpse Bride. And while Tim Burton is known for his dark, twisted, macabre characters and stories, it was actually Carlos Grangel who was integral to the character design of Corpse Bride. He would take Burton's rough sketches and elaborate on them. And it is apparently a complete coincidence that Victor resembles his actor Johnny Depp. The animation staff for Corpse Bride started out at 23 animators working at Three Mill Studios in East London. That would be increased over time as the production became more and more hectic and busy. Stages A, B and C were utilised. There was also a puppet workshop there as well. Most of the animation staff were English, but the Americans on staff came from Wilbington Studios. Nearly 40 experienced model makers and set builders had previously worked on the Harry Potter and Star Wars movies, and production on Corpse Bride was a 55-week schedule. The puppets, courtesy of McKinnon and Saunders, were made of the same steel armatures by Merrick Cheney and Tom Sentarnan that had made the Nightmare Before Christmas's puppets so iconic. Like most stop-motion puppets, the steel skeletons were covered in foam muscles and silicon skin, with eyes of urethane and hair made of resin and silicon. Unlike most stop-motion puppets, however, the lead puppets on Corpse Bride had facial gear mechanisms, meaning the faces could be moved incrementally without having to rely on hundreds of replacement heads. If you've listened to any previous stop-motion episode of this podcast, you will know that replacement heads, you can have hundreds and hundreds of replacement heads for a stop-motion puppet. But on Corpse Bride, instead of replacing the head, they would slightly move the mechanics for each frame. 
This was done by an Allen key through the hair and into the ears, with each side operating independently. Because of this, the puppets were larger than normal, between 12 to 18 inches tall, and with heads the size of golf balls, but still with the signature Tim Burton long legs, tiny feet and thin frame. The puppet fabrication supervisor was Graham Maid, who'd previously been lead supervisor on Chicken Run, that's episode 78 of this podcast. The mechanics could make mouths smile, they could open and close eyes, they could move brows and cheeks. Other puppets had replacement mouths. Positioning for the mechanical features was crucial because if you turn the Allen key too much, the puppet's face would become deformed. There were 14 puppets of Emily, the corpse bride, and 12 for Victor, costing as much as $30,000 each. 30 featured characters meant that all in all, the production had 300 puppets. And the hardest thing to animate on this movie was Emily's veil, which had to convincingly flow behind her as she walked. Some shots had to have a computer-generated veil, but the majority are practical shots, and this was achieved by stitching tiny wires into the lace. The practical shots of the veil were so good that many think the veil is totally computer-generated, but it is not. When the practical work is so good that you can't tell which shots are practical and which are CG, is actually a great use of CG. And that's one of the ways that I think CG can actually enhance a movie like this when you can't actually tell the difference. McKinnon and Saunders' techniques on the stop-motion puppets were something that they'd invested a lot of research and development on, not for this movie, but for one of Tim Burton's previous movies, Mars Attacks. Because famously on Mars Attacks, before the aliens were completely CG, they were actually going to be stop-motion. And a lot of work went into these stop-motion aliens. And it's something that I really do want to talk about in a future episode on Mars Attacks. It is on my list, by the way. Because, obviously, all the stop-motion work eventually was transitioned to CG. McKinnon and Saunders also worked on Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is episode 84, which is, again, another fantastic stop-motion animated movie. The sets for both The Land of the Living and The Land of the Dead were designed by Alex McDowell, who drew on Eastern European influences. It was almost as if all of the colour from the dreary, grey, oppressive Land of the Living bleeds down into the brighter, more purpley, bluey, greeny, orangey Land of the Dead. It's a style, actually, that's very similar to Coco. Although Corpse Bride came out before Coco, uh, Coco is definitely more vibrant in its visuals. But actually, I would say Coco is a great comparison piece for this movie if you were looking to watch two movies back to back. I would definitely recommend Corpse Bride and Coco. I will actually stick Coco in the recommended episodes that I put at the end. But colour was the easiest way to separate the worlds, but not have them so different it was like watching two separate movies. At the time, the sets for Corpse Bride were the largest stop-motion sets ever constructed, as high as 16 feet and as deep as 30 feet. Upper floors were scaled down so they weren't always out of frame and ground floors had to match the puppet's scale for entrances and exits. Corpse Bride was also the first stop-motion movie to be shot completely digitally, using Canon SLR digital still cameras and Nikon lenses, which shortened the editing time as digital shots could be seen immediately, tested and refined the same day, something that was impossible with film. The movie was originally set up to film on film cameras, so it was a last-minute decision by Warner Brothers to make the switch to digital. The movie was shot to as close as a one take per shot as possible because there was practically no time for reshoots. Most of the experimentation was done during storyboarding to plan these scenes out exactly so the puppets and lighting could be set up and shooting could commence with very little ad-libbing, shall we say, on the day. Much of the film was shot on twos or fours and finished frames were downloaded from one gig image cards. And I just think one gig, 
how little one gig is today. And one gig only held a hundred frames of animation. So just imagine how many one gig <laughs> SD cards they had lying around with a hundred frames of animation on each. And as for the cast, going back to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which as I mentioned, Tim Burton was working on at the same time as this, Burton relied heavily on his co-director Mike Johnson on Corpse Bride to basically work to Burton's vision. And while Burton was effectively steering the ship on both projects, he decided to get some other Charlie and the Chocolate Factory alumni on for the ride. Burton approached Johnny Depp on the set of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and mentioned that he had an animated project he was working on. So he gave Depp the script and Depp loved it and he assumed production would start after Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But then one day during filming, Burton approached Depp again and suggested they start recording Corpse Bride lines that night. But Johnny Depp hadn't actually figured out who Victor would be and ended up hashing the character together after grilling Burton for 15 minutes. Helena Bonham Carter, who at the time was Tim Burton's real-life partner, was the only actor who had to audition, reportedly. And she also had to wait two weeks to hear back and, oh, to be a fly on the wall at their house during dinner. Visual effects were supplied by Moving Picture Company, who digitally removed rods as support for the puppets as well as creating the CGI butterflies and birds and the aforementioned CG veil. Crows were prevalent in the movie, mostly to foreshadow Emily's fate, because the collected noun for crows is a murder of crows. The visual effects were added to roughly 1,000 of the shots in the movie. Tim Burton would speak to About.com in 2005 about the differences between directing Corpse Bride and his work on The Nightmare Before Christmas, because if you don't know, Tim Burton did not direct The Nightmare Before Christmas. That is a Henry Selick movie, despite the fact that it's marketed as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. He is not the director of that movie. And additionally, because ultimately, Corpse Bride is always going to be compared to The Nightmare Before Christmas, favourably or no. Burton would say, The difference on The Nightmare Before Christmas was that what I had designed completely. It was a very completed package in my mind. I felt like it was there. I felt more comfortable with it. With Corpse Bride, it was a bit more organic. It was based on an old folktale. We kept kind of changing it, but, you know, I had a great co-director with Mike Johnson. I feel like we complemented each other quite well. It was just a different movie, a different process. And with the words of Tim Burton, in your mind, let's move over to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And it never gets any easier to do this. Is there a link between Keanu Reeves and Tim Burton? And there's loads of clickbait sites suggesting that Keanu's going to star in a Tim Burton movie, blah, blah, blah. But regular listeners to this podcast will know I try to avoid clickbait stories. I try to link him using actual fact or at least something that's definitely in the pipeline. But it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> to link Keanu Reeves to a Tim Burton movie. So really, the only thing I have is that genuinely, I think Keanu would make a pretty convincing live-action Victor if they ever made a live-action Corpse Bride. You could just imagine him all broody. And I feel like you'd obviously have to have Sandra Bullock as Victoria. And only because I, I just love their partnership. I'm a huge fan of both of them. Just generally both. Sandra Bullock, love her. Keanu Reeves, clearly I love him. But I feel like she would be the perfect Victoria. I don't have anyone in mind for Emily, though. Haven't thought that far ahead. But yeah, if they do live-action Corpse Bride, definitely we should get Keanu in for that. 
So I've mentioned so far, there are a couple of things that link Corpse Bride to its 2005 Tim Burton stablemate, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And one of those things is the music, because Danny Elfman, who obviously also worked on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, is put to good use here for the music for Corpse Bride. Obviously, Danny Elfman also did The Nightmare Before Christmas as well. And Danny Elfman's contribution to Corpse Bride is both a plus and a minus because when the movie is on, and coincidentally, Elfman himself plays Bone Jangles because of course he does, the songs are lovely and wonderful. But once the movie is over, I really feel like there's nothing really that memorable, which is completely unlike his work on The Nightmare Before Christmas. And that's kind of one of the things that I always come back to about this movie is the shadow of The Nightmare Before Christmas falls so wide over this movie for so many unnecessary reasons. But I really feel like if Corpse Bride had that one memorable track, that would just cement it in people's memories a little bit more. It is a beautiful soundtrack, though, fully encompassing the macabre land of the living and the vibrant land of the dead. It's a lot of fun to listen to. It's just really unfortunate that it's not more memorable. If you know what I mean, I don't want to be mean about this movie because I love this movie. But I just genuinely feel like a lot of people forget this movie. And maybe if it did have slightly more memorable songs, then maybe people wouldn't forget it so much. But, you know, when Corpse Bride actually came out, it had a limited release on the 16th of September 2005. It was released wide on the 23rd of September 2005. It hit number two at the box office against Flight Plan, which was number one. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory had come out 10 weeks prior to Corpse Bride and was still kind of mulling around number 22 in the charts at that time. And Corpse Bride did really well at the box office. It would make 53.4 million domestically in the US and 64.7 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $118 million against a $40 million budget. So Corpse Bride did really well. And critically, it did well as well. Critics praised its whimsical, macabre nature and its visuals. But honestly, some critics found the ending a little bittersweet. In fact, most of the criticism that I found for this movie tends to be focused on its ending, which, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie, but if you haven't, then you should. Victor ends up with Victoria after Emily gives up her claim to being his wife. And many fans of this movie wanted Victor and Emily to have their happily ever after mainly because Emily was robbed of her dream and murdered. But Emily choosing to give that life to another woman just shows what a selfless person she really is. Arguably, Victor gets to know Emily more than Victoria, but this is supposed to be a trademark Burton gothic fairy tale, after all. When it came to awards season, Corpse Bride was nominated at the 78th Academy Awards for Best Animated Feature, but lost to another stop-motion movie, Ardman's Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which also starred Helena Bonham Carter as Lady Tottington. And there is no sequel to Corpse Bride, and there probably will never be a sequel to Corpse Bride unless they make the live-action Keanu Reeves movie. But spiritual sequels would start in 2009 when Laika brought out their first animated stop-motion movie, Coraline. And if you've listened to the episode on Coraline, you will know how much I love Coraline. Tim Burton would return to stop-motion animation for his feature-length remake of Frankenweenie in 2014. So you've heard what I think, and you've heard about the history, and some of the legacy, of Corpse Bride. But I really want to know, and I'm sure you do too, what do other people think? What does social media think about this movie? And I always like to ask, and I always like to start with the patrons of this podcast, because they're wonderful. And so we're going to start with Ian. And Ian says... 
This is a movie I don't know, so I'm looking forward to learning about it. And to be perfectly honest with you, Ian, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people have passed this movie by simply because, as I say, the shadow of The Nightmare Before Christmas looms so large. But also I feel like maybe people have seen this movie based on watching and loving The Nightmare Before Christmas. So maybe a bit of a double-edged sword, perhaps. But you should absolutely check this movie out. It is available here in the UK on Amazon Prime Video if you have that. So absolutely watch Corpse Bride and let me know what you think. And perennial commenter Andy, he's back everyone, yay! Andy is pretty much a commenter every episode, so I always love to read what Andy thinks. And Andy says, Fun trivia fact, Tim Burton has been nominated for only two Academy Awards, both of animated films, Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie, odd considering that Edward and Big Fish exist. Which, I will agree with you on Edward. I've only ever seen Big Fish once, it was a long time ago and I don't really remember it, but Edward is phenomenal. Anyway, Andy, carry on. So he continues, Corpse Bride heralds Tim Burton's return to the studio that first brought him acclaim, Warner Brothers, after a nine-year absence since the release of Mars Attacks. While this movie's main setting point is its incredible stop-motion animation, it lacks that arena when being fairly, in my opinion, compared to The Nightmare Before Christmas. There's a certain dynamic cinematography of Henry Selick's direction in that film that Burton falls behind in when taking a turn behind the camera. Scenes look flatter, composition is really front-facing, and it really lacks the wonder of A Nightmare Before Christmas. Another aspect that fails by comparison are the souls. For some reason, Danny Elfman couldn't duplicate the catchiness of the souls from the aforementioned film, and as a result, its overall legacy kind of sinks. With that said, while it doesn't appear all year long hot topic, it's still a very good animated film. My kids enjoyed it when we watched it last year, and a lot of that comes down to some great voice acting and a score which, Again, lacks in comparison, but still adds that great Elfman Burton vibe to the film. And to be honest, I kind of have to agree with you on all of those points, Andy, because I feel like I've been overly critical of Corpse Bride in this episode, and I really don't mean to be, but I really do feel like it lacks something that's it's not quite there. And I do feel like it is mostly the music that lets this movie down. And I don't want to be that person who says something mean about a movie, especially an animated movie, and I'm genuinely not being mean. It's constructive criticism is what it is. But really, Andy has summarised exactly what I think perfectly. And are you a geek? Do you like salad? If the answer to both those things is yes, then you will love Andy's podcast. It is Geek Salad. Now, it's not about salads, but it is about all things geek and nerdy and brilliant You've got comic books, you've got movies, you've got games, you've got music. Basically, anything and everything is on Geek Salad. It's a brilliant podcast. They have over 200 episodes of brilliance. So make sure that you check them out. I will put some information in the show notes for Geek Salad. Moving over to Twitter. I'll be honest, I didn't get very many comments for Corpse Bride. Now, I don't know if that's again because maybe people have missed the requests. Or maybe it is just the fact that people don't remember this movie. I don't know. But we only have two comments total for this movie. And the first one is on Twitter. And it's at Jamie Garwood, who said, Better than Frank and Weenie. Which, I'll be honest, I haven't seen Frank and Weenie, so I can't really comment. And Instagram, sassylassie76 is back. She also featured last episode on Wolfwalkers. And she says, this is my favourite Tim Burton film. 
There's so much I love about it and I can't put any of it into words. The characters, the story, the songs. I love it all beginning to end. And as I said, no more comments. That's basically it for comments. So we've got none on Facebook. But a huge thank you to the patrons, Ian and Andy, and to Jamie and to Tara for their comments on Corpse Bride. Corpse Bride was an interesting choice for this podcast in many ways. And I'm certain fans of Laika probably won't be too happy that I skipped over something like Paranorman in favour of a piece of Laika contract work. But the desire to take on something that I, myself, could not completely remember became overwhelming. There's no doubt this movie is fantastic and that people loved it. It made great money at the box office. Critics praised it for all the reasons why it truly is a terrific movie. Not to mention as well, this is a 78-minute movie. This movie is super brief. It's less than an hour and a half. And you can count the number of less than an hour and a half animated movies probably on one hand nowadays. But as I've alluded to throughout this episode, the shadow of The Nightmare Before Christmas has been cast so wide that this movie feels almost forgotten now. But to be honest, that's why I wanted to do this movie for this animation season. Because if I couldn't remember it, chances are other people couldn't remember it either. It certainly doesn't help that this movie never had the marketing power of Disney behind it than Nightmare Before Christmas did. You can still buy plenty of Jack Skellington merch, but where's all the Victor Van Dort merch? There's some stunning visual work in this movie. The voice work is great. It brings depth to these characters. Helena Bonham Carter especially shines as the tragic heroine Emily. And while Tim Burton's name is splashed all over this, it is often referred to as Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. Mike Johnson is the guy whose steady hand controlled this production. He was the one who insisted on all of these tiny details. In many ways, it's Tim Burton by name because I really do feel like Mike Johnson took the lead on this production. And I guess there are people out there who are put off the title because honestly, Corpse Bride sounds very ominous, but they shouldn't be. It does have its slightly repulsive moments, sure. And while it relies on the age-old love at first sight trope, it also comments on the traditions of marrying for wealth and how the responsibility was on the daughter to save the family, no matter what she actually wanted. Undoubtedly, this pressure had also been put on Emily too. I find the ending quite lovely, actually, because everyone gets what they want. Victor and Victoria get each other, Lord Barkis gets his comeuppance, and Emily finally gets to ascend to heaven, free of the shackles of her unfinished business. It's more the age-old, if you love someone, let them go. Because true love never dies, after all. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Corpse Bride. If you have enjoyed this episode and you'd like to take a moment to help this podcast grow, that would be amazing. And what you can do is you can leave a rating or review. I will pop a link in the show notes, a really easy link for you to go to your chosen podcast app and just give Verbal Diorama a quick rate and review. If you're on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, you can follow me at Verbal Diorama and you can like and retweet posts or share things and basically just get the word out there for this podcast. That would be awesome. I'm also in Letterboxd under the same name as well. And I regularly post up movie ratings and reviews on Letterboxd. I love using that service. It's super fun. Or the easiest thing you can do is just simply tell your friends or family about this podcast. It's the easiest way and the cheapest way to get the word out there and get people listening to this podcast because I love doing this podcast. Genuinely, I get so much out of it every week. I find out so many amazing things about movies and I love to share that with you. So if you do know someone who is a huge fan of Tim Burton, who 
loves the movie Corpse Bride, then please share this podcast. And if you like this episode of Corpse Bride specifically, you might also like one of the following previous episodes of this podcast. I am going to recommend episode 29, Kubo and the Two Strings, because oh my God, that movie is so underrated. It is one of the most beautiful movies that Laika have ever done. It genuinely, genuinely deserved to win an Academy Award the year it was nominated, but it never did because it came out in 2016 and 2016 was a wonderful year for animation. You had Moana coming out that year. You had Zootopia coming out that year. There was so many brilliant animated movies in 2016 and Kubo got a little bit sidelined, but don't let that put you off because it's genuinely Laika's masterpiece. And as much as I love Coraline and I do, Kubo is their masterpiece, genuinely one of the greatest animated movies you will ever see. So please watch that movie if you haven't and then listen to my episode. And speaking of Coraline, episode 63, I moved on to Coraline, which is such an outstanding work of art. Just the tiny little details in Coraline that make it wonderful. Coraline is very gothic. It's very macabre. It's a little bit scary as well. And sometimes kids need to be scared. Just give them all the Oscars. Give it to them all. And Cartoon Salute. Give Laika and Cartoon Salute all of the Oscars. Speaking of a studio that wins a lot of Oscars, episode 75, Coco. Obviously, I mentioned Coco. Coco is, firstly, one of the most popular episodes of this podcast ever, which is unsurprising considering the subject matter of Coco. Coco obviously talks very frankly about death, but it's also a great movie for kids to really understand death and that death is not the end. And I think that's a great message on Corpse Bride as well, that although Emily did unfortunately die, it wasn't the end for her. And she still got to experience something after her death, which is nice. It's, it's a nice message. But, I mean, Coco, genuinely one of the greatest movies that Pixar have ever made. So if you have not seen Coco, grab yourself a Disney Plus subscription and watch that movie. Oh, and bring some tissues. Bring tissues for all of these movies. Bring tissues for Kubo. <laughs> bring tissues for Coraline, bring tissues for Coco. But you don't really need to bring tissues for the next movie that I'm going to recommend. Episode 94, Beetlejuice, because I genuinely love that movie. And it's one of the best things Tim Burton has ever done. And it's fantastic. There's so many great underlying messages in Beetlejuice. It's not just about the scares. It's just a great story. And it's filled with so much warmth and love and brilliant visuals. Again, talking about the visuals in Corpse Bride, the difference between the land of the living and the land of the dead is exactly the same in Beetlejuice. And again, Beetlejuice talks about life after death and also about how death is not the end. So, yeah, it's not animated, but if you haven't seen Beetlejuice, watch it. And uh, my episode of Beetlejuice was genuinely so much fun to do as well. So, yeah, they're my episode recommendations. As always, give me feedback. Let me know. So the next episode, obviously, we're still going to be talking about animation and we're going to be moving to a studio that has had its ups and downs when it comes to its animated output. But we're going to be going to its first hand-drawn animated movie. Now, this is the same studio that gave us Shrek, but it's not Shrek. It's not a sequel to Shrek. I have done an episode on Shrek, by the way. It's not CG animated at all. This was the first movie that they did and it was also hand-drawn. It's a movie that is one of the most stunning pieces of work that DreamWorks have ever done. I'm going to be talking about The Prince of Egypt. And again, this is a movie. It has a great voice cast. It has some wonderful music in it as well. I'm so excited to talk about The Prince of Egypt because it's a movie that I haven't seen, 
as often as maybe some of the other DreamWorks stuff, certainly not as much as Disney's hand-drawn stuff. But look at how beautiful that movie is. Oh my God, it's absolutely stunning. There's some beautiful scenes. So yeah, join me next week where I'm going to talk about the history and legacy of the Prince of Egypt. If you do want to support this show, you are doing it right now because you're listening to this podcast. And I'm so grateful. And that is genuinely all you need to do. But if you do want to support this show more than you currently are, you can support it financially. And there are some wonderful people out there who do support the show financially. They give a couple of dollars every month to help Verbal Diorama run, to help me buy new equipment and new software. So if you do want to join them, it's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. Huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart and Ian D. Just remember, when you want to come back, say hopscotch. I also have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. And if you want to get in touch and you want to say hi or you want to give some feedback, verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go to verbaldiorama.com or you can pop over to filmstories.co.uk and you can read articles that I write and you can buy copies of the magazine that I also write in too, which is Film Stories magazine. Issue 30 is out now. And finally, with this hand, I will lift your sorrows. Your cup will never empty, for I will be your wine. With this candle, I will light your way in darkness. With this ring, I ask you to be mine. Bye. Vision.